Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. First in line for feedback are, comes from Brian. Brian writes in and says, hey, Noah, could you talk a little bit about the bar to entry for supporting or starting a federated social media service instance? For example, what could you support with a $5 droplet off of DigitalOcean or maybe another virtual server, PeerTube, Mastodon, Matrix, Tor, VPN, etc.? Are there any of those that you could stack together on the same box? Would they require a lot of administration or would they be relatively set and forget? Thanks, Brian. So I'll work my way backwards and say that anytime you have a service that multiple users are going to use, it's never going to be set and forget. It's never going to be set and forget because at a minimum, you need to back up that user's data. Now, to a certain extent, you can offload that, right? You could sign up for an account to DigitalOcean, or you could sign up at Vulture, you could sign up at OVH, and you could use their built-in backup uh, utility to back up your VM. And a lot, and indeed, a lot of places go that route, and that works just well. I will tell you that I have gotten bit by that in the past. I've gotten to a point where I, we thought everything was backing up on DigitalOcean. Um, they, we paid for the, the the extra money to get the backups through DigitalOcean, and yet when our VM failed and tried to restore from the backups, and that failed, they DigitalOcean basically told us, "Oops, sorry, that happens from time to time." So I. You know, and not that we ever relied on it completely to begin with anyway, but uh, if you have data, it should be backed up somewhere else. Um, so what can you run on a $5 droplet? Well, first of all, obviously, it depends on what VPS provider you go with will depend on what you can run for 5 bucks. So on DigitalOcean, I looked it up. You get one gigabyte of RAM, a 25 gig SSD, and one terabyte of transfer. So if we kind of back that out a little bit, we can start to look at what services would run on a server like that and what services aren't going to run on a service like that. So the first thing, PeerTube, right? PeerTube is you're going to have a hard time running PeerTube on 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 25 gig storage, right? Unless it's very small content or you're not updating it very frequently. If you had like a set collection of videos that you wanted to put up on PeerTube and maybe for like an internal company kind of a thing or maybe you had some of the videos that you're just sharing with family and so you're rotating through them, um, that might work, but you're going to hit that 25 gig limit, I would think, pretty quick. Mastodon, you'll get a good long way with Mastodon, uh, depending on how many users you have, depending on how much logs you want, and depending on how much media those users upload, uh, you could get a long way with Mastodon. Matrix, I, it's a little shy on RAM for Matrix. Matrix really likes to see two gigabytes of RAM, um, but in a fa- small family or small community server, that could work for you. Uh, Tor Relay, that's going to work great. This is where DigitalOcean shines. This is where those entry-level droplets shine, is when you need a box that has to have lightning-fast internet and access to fast hard drives and access to a decent amount of memory, but really it's just doing a thing. It's not necessarily storing anything. It's just doing a thing. And um, obviously a Tor relay fits that, fits that, uh, that model pretty well. Uh, a VPN node, again, excellent choice for it for a VPN node. You could set up yourself a wire guard and you could set up yourself an open VPN server. You can connect to those and get onto the internet um, 
uh, from anywhere. And and that's going to allow you to do that. And you would probably run that with no issues on DigitalOcean Droplet. Heck, if you wanted to have, say, hey, I want all my family and all of my friends to run on a $5 droplet and I I, I want to I want to have VPN service for them. Uh, you could certainly do something like that. Uh, I personally would not put multiple services on a box, and it's not that you couldn't. With I mean, if you look at Matrix, for example, Matrix, if you run it, you could run it entirely inside of Docker containers. In fact, we do with the Ansible deploy script, uh, and so you could certainly have multiple Docker containers, and you could just have the VM on DigitalOcean be your Docker host, and then you could put your stuff and the services that you want to run on top of that. So certainly you could go that route Um, for flexibility, for stability, for security reasons. I probably wouldn't do that. Your matrix server goes down and all of a sudden you've also lost access to, to your, your VPN service or your Mastodon instance or your peer tube instance. Why not split them up? And that gives you the opportunity to say, you know what? Peer tube getting a ton of hits taken off like wildfire and we need more space. So we're going to have to move that into a data center or in my house or in my business or whatever it is. We don't affect Matrix. We don't affect the VPN node. We don't affect the Tor relay. We don't affect the PeerTube instance or Mastodon. Whichever one you're not using, that thing can stay uh, can stay unaffected. Uh, so I like that. I like the, the, the flexibility. And, of course, to a certain extent, uh, containers are going to change that a little bit. But I'll tell you, we started with a DigitalOcean droplet for a Matrix server. We outgrew it. We upgraded it. We outgrew it. We upgraded it. We outgrew it. We're at the point now where there isn't really anywhere to upgrade in DigitalOcean. So we're going to buy a physical server and we're going to migrate the Matrix instance over to there uh, and get some more oomph out of it. Um, so, yeah, it, is it set and forget? Absolutely not. I, I wouldn't say anything that involves other users is set and forget. Um, but if you wanted to get started, I would get started with something like Matrix or something like Mastodon. And the reason I would get started with something like Matrix or something like Mastodon is because both of those applications are primarily text-based, right? The vast majority of traffic that goes over Matrix are text messages. And the vast majority of traffic that goes over Mastodon are going to be status updates and stuff like that. And so really the only size thing you're going to have to deal with is user content. And depending on who's on your server, that may not even be an issue. Um, but if you do it properly, if you do it inside of a container, something like that, when it does become an issue, then you can move and uh, move on to either something like uh, AWS, if you're looking for something that scales, or you can go the uh, El Cheapo route and go to something like OVH or Kim Sufi. Kim Sufi, I think you can rent a dedicated server for like 50 bucks a month, maybe less. So there are ways to get around it. Uh, there are things that you can do. Uh, our next email comes in from Corey. Corey writes in and says, Hi, Noah. I'm a big fan since episode one. Thanks for your service to Linux community. I'm searching for a small USB Wi-Fi 5 or 6 dongle that is plug and play on Linux. Everything that I can find on Amazon or elsewhere either does not mention Linux or has mixed Linux reviews. I have an Edimax, which works well, uh, but it's Wi-Fi 4. I gambled on the TP-Link Archer T3U, but Ubuntu 24 did not recognize it. So... Uh, a couple of things. So first of all, backing up just a little bit, uh, we used to have Wi-Fi standards um, that and, and you know, started with 802.11b, then 802.11g, then n, then ac. The latest one um, is actually 802.11ax. And at some point, I think that people just started to get confused by what all those letters after the end of 802.11 mean and nobody really knew I shouldn't say nobody, but common people didn't really understand muggles, the people that don't do tech stuff, confuse them. Uh, and so they have switched over to this 
Wi-Fi 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 standard. So my understanding is that the Wi-Fi 5 standard, Wi-Fi 6 standard is the 802.11c, 802.11ax. So I don't know of any 802.11ax USB Wi-Fi adapters. I will tell you that I also like the Edamax. I use the M-U-M-I-M-O-E-W-7822ULC, which works flawlessly on Linux. It is an 802.11ac Wi-Fi dongle. There is another company that I'm a big fan of, and it's a company called Pluggable. Pluggable makes very good uh, devices that are not uh, insanely priced, and all of them to to date have worked right out of the box with Linux. And I don't just include their Wi-Fi adapters in that. I include their Bluetooth adapters in that. They have wired Ethernet adapters that I include in that. Just a really fantastic company. And so Pluggable, uh, the Pluggable 802.11 uh, I, I, uh, RTL8188EUS is the model number. I have a link for both of those for you in the show notes. Our third email comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, Hey, Noah, and the community in show 216, you mentioned solutions for a family chat system. I have two suggestions. First of all, you could set up a self-hosted XMPP server, which can be self-hosted on a cheap VPS, or you could install a Raspberry Pi or home internet connection as long as it doesn't go against the ISP's terms of service. So I actually tried doing this uh, a while back, and um, I discovered a couple of things. XMPP was really the best open source communication uh, protocol that we had prior to Matrix being available. Um, there were a couple problems with it, though. The first was that it was very extensible, but out of the box, it didn't do all of the things that a person might want a private communication system to do. And so, the way that we went, uh, the way that we got around doing that is um, you added things on, and so you could add on encryption, you could add on this or add on that, and it works. The problem is. Uh, it was not very aggressive at reconnecting back to the server. And if you if you tweak the client to become more aggressive to connect back to the server, so you got messages instantaneously. Um, then you ran. Then I started running into battery life issues. And so overall, I just eventually decided that it was a lot of hassle. The other thing is, from the other user's perspective. There is something magical about telling a user, go, down, go download Element, sign up for a free account, send me a message, here's my username, and people can just do that. Um, that just really doesn't exist with XMPP. They're going to ask which client. They're going to ask what server to connect to. They're going to ask what the username is. They're going to ask what port it is. They're going to ask what password it is. And it's just, it's, it's fine if you're going to set it up and administrate it for someone else, but I, I don't know that it has the same appeal that something like Matrix does. However, your second suggestion, Delta Chat. Delta Chat offers a replacement for a UI like Telegram, WhatsApp, or Signal, but it does it all with email. Uh, you can see examples of this at Delta.Chat's website at Delta.Chat. Again, you could self-host this. You could self-host an email server. You could use a free email server. And then he links to a another video um, that explains how to set up an email server uh, and, and, and working on Delta Chat. Now, I have to tell you, I took a look at this and I dug into this a little bit. This is unbelievably fantastic. In fact, one of the first things that crossed my mind when I saw it was, I wonder if I could get Delta Chat to speak Matrix because the the UI that these guys have designed is exactly what I want out of a UI for Matrix. Simple uh, bubble style chats, the same thing that people are used to with WhatsApp and iMessage and all of those places. That's what I would like to see in a Matrix client. And so these guys have nailed it. And the truth is the back end of Matrix is is desirable precisely because it's a small little payload that just 
goes over the internet and and uses regular HTTP or HTTPS uh, to transport data. So you're not you're not having to to have some some complicated uh, transport system. Now it may not be as fast as some of the com- uh, competing messaging systems out there, but it's certainly more sustainable long term. And the reality is, it's not slow enough that anybody cares to try to do anything about it. And so once we get to Dendrite and have uh, a more robust server side, I don't think the transport protocol will, you know, people will really care about the, the, the speed of that. And if something better does come along, they can certainly implement it. Now, I will tell you, there's something else that Charlie points out, and he he, he recommends lowendbox.com. And I'd not heard of lowendbox.com, um, but it is an inexpensive VPS provider. And so very much like OVH and very much like Kim Sufi, if you're looking for a place to get a cheap VPS, lowendbox.com, check it out. I've not personally used it myself, so that comes from the community, but I think it's... Uh, I think the more providers you have, uh, the better. And so I, I worry a little bit about privacy and data security with some of the free ones. But at the end of the day, if you are using something like Matrix and you're using encrypted chats, then it doesn't entirely matter. Our third email comes in today uh, from Matt. Matt writes in and says, Dear Noah, thank you so much for your show every week. It's very helpful. I have a question, though. How does one get a job-worthy skills for Linux? I've been using Linux for at least a decade now. I would love to get a job using those skills. Also, where would you get started working for a company like Red Hat? How do you know if your skills are up to it? Thanks again, Matt. So we'll start on this. I would tell you, and I would tell anybody, always focus on skills. Do not focus on certs. Do not focus on classes. Do not focus on skills. And you can acquire skills a number of different ways. The easiest way is just to go to a place like Linux Academy or uh, VTC any of these, or actually even Red Hat, it has been, yeah, since COVID, has been putting out a lot of their training material, if you watch carefully, for free. Uh, and they run a little, they, they, they run a special, and you can get access to that training material, and you can get caught up. Obviously, YouTube, shows like Ask Noah Show, those kinds of things are going to help you do those things. But you also, there's another way that you can do it, right? The other thing is you can be willing to work for less or free to get your foot in the door. Find an organization that needs some help. Find a project, find a place that's looking for some help. And apply and say, hey, I, you know, I can help and be willing to take less money because you don't have that experience to get your foot through the door, gain that experience and then move up. Um, if you want to go the route of certification, I have two suggestions. The first is I would I always start with Red Hat. And the reason I start with Red Hat is as a guy who hires people who maintain servers, I know from sitting on my side of the desk that a Red Hat certification means something to me, whereas a lot of the other certifications don't. And I'm not picking on them. It's just that other certifications are oftentimes based off of someone's ability to regurgitate textbook knowledge. And that's not what we run into in the field. In fact, the fastest way to get yourself to find yourself with a meeting in my office is to come tell me that, well, we are going to go do that. But uh, I was trained on CentOS 6 and that running CentOS 8. and so- No, no. That's not the way this works. Technology is, is a moving target. And so we, we have to stay up to date with the latest. And so and a lot of training and a lot of certification is kind of based off of that model, that idea that, hey, we have a thing and then we train everyone for the thing and then everyone is on the same page and then that's just where we sit. And that I, I just doesn't represent reality. Red Hat doesn't do stuff like that. Uh, Red Hat, when you sit down at a test, they give you a box, they give you a uh, 
they, they start, they say, here are the 26 things you have to do, and you do those however many lists of things is. It has to survive a reboot, that kind of thing, right? It means something. Somebody who has the RHCSA certification, I know that that person is at least capable of administrating a basic Red Hat server. Um, the other one that's worth looking into is the LPI, LPI.org. So LPI has what they call the LPIC 1 and LPIC 2. Now, they actually have introduced, which I think is a good idea, they've introduced a third tier, which is called Linux Essentials. And the Linux Essentials does a couple of things. First of all, it is the easiest certification to obtain from LPI, but additionally, they get, they, they, they cut you a break on the cost. So you can get the Linux Essential certification for $120. When you go up to LPIC 1 or LPIC 2, that's where they start going up to the $200, and basically everything after that is 200 bucks. But that very first certification, they cut you a break for. I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe, I don't have the, the information up in front, on the screen in front of me, but I believe Red Hat is, I think it's $300 to take the test or $500, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, but both of those certifications are probably worth pursuing. Now, I will tell you, if you're considering Red Hat, you specifically mentioned them by name, and you said that you would be interested in getting a job someplace like Red Hat. I've been to Red Hat. I've interviewed people from Red Hat. People that work at Red Hat are, are, are good friends of mine, and, and we talk about the culture that's within Red Hat. And here's what I can tell you. Um, Red Hat will take you at any skill level. Um, I, I, my, the Steve who organizes our emails and helps out, um, gave a presentation at Southeast Linux Fest last year. And in that presentation, he, he talked about when he applied for Red Hat, he specifically said like, I'll work in your mailroom. I just want to get my foot through the door. And if you have that attitude, that, that willingness to serve a company, uh, in any capacity, um, and you're willing to work hard and you're willing to apply yourself, you will move up. And so set your expectations realistically. Set your income expectations realistically uh, and then go start looking through job postings on Red Hat and find one that really resonates with you. Find one that you say, that's me, man. That's what I could do. That's what I want to be doing. And you know what? Even if you find that job, Matt, if you find the job that you say, that's what I want to be doing, but I don't know how to do those things. Go learn how to do those things. Pick up those skills. And maybe there's a stepping stone, right? And we've talked to people in the community that, that have done this. A lot of people start with a place like GitLab and start get their foot in the door there and then move to a Red Hat or a Canonical or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, having your expectations set ahead of time and being willing to compromise will get you a good long way. Our pick of the week this week is Beeper HQ. I'm telling you, this is the I've been waiting for this, something like this to exist. I knew something like this was going to pop up. It's previously called Nova Chat. It's now called Beeper. You can learn more at beeperhq.com. All of your chats in one app. But no, weren't you talking about Matrix? Yeah, this is Matrix. So Beeper is a fast single app to chat on iMessage, WhatsApp, and 13 other networks. You can search, snooze, archive messages, have a unified inbox, and never miss a message again. It supports Facebook. It supports Instagram. It supports iMessage. It supports Telegram. It supports IRC, Discord, uh, Hangouts, Skype, texting, SMS, Twitter, Slack. All of these places are all bridged together. Now, I'm sure you're asking yourself, well, how are they doing that on the back end? Matrix. So what they've done is taken Matrix and the bridging capability of Matrix and branded it, made it into something that is approachable for anyone. And so anybody can go to Beeper HQ and say, uh, I want to sign up. And so I went through their sign up process just to kind of see um, 
how this how how their how their service works. And essentially, they have a form uh, when you click on get getting started that that they ask you to fill out. And on that form, they ask you what is your preferred chat network? Do you prefer Facebook, iMessage, Matrix, WhatsApp, Signal, Telegram, Discord, Hangouts, plain old SMS? What's your ID on that network? And then they ask, what other chat apps do you use? iMessage, SMS, Slack, Instagram, Discord, Facebook, you know, Hangouts, WhatsApp, Telegram, Twitter, WeChat, Signal, Line, Skype, Matrix, Teams, LinkedIn, XMPP, Wire, IRC, Keybase, and GroupMe. All of those can be bridged uh, to Matrix. And then, of course, they ask a couple other contact pieces of information, and then they then basically it says we'll be in contact. And so uh, <laughs> I – Heads up to the folks over there, the, the 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 form that I filled out, I was hoping that it would get me to the end and I'd actually be able to set it up. So none of that's my actual real information, but I wanted to see how your process worked. Uh, I am exceptionally happy to see that something like this exists. Here's why. I love Matrix. I love Element. I've been living on it. It it, it does everything I wanted to do and then some more. Uh, EMS is fantastic. It has revolutionized my business. It has just taken us to a whole different level with the amount of team communication that we have. But there's one critical element missing, and that is... When my sister or my mom or my friend wants to get on or wants to communicate with me, uh, telling them, well, just, you got to go to, you got to download the element client and then enter in a custom URL server. Like, it's just not a thing. They have to, it has to be easier for them. And so Beeper HQ is approachable to those kinds of people, the people that just say, listen, I just want one app and then here's all the things that I use and I just want to be able to talk. And so if they choose Facebook as their primary app, it, as best I can tell from Beepers HQ site, they're going to support that and they'll just reverse the bridging. And so all of the things will come to Facebook instead of coming to Element. Of course, they're using Matrix on the back end, uh, but this is fantastic. So the website, BeeperHQ.com, BeeperHQ.com, it, from what I can tell, it is Matrix for human beings. It is Matrix that's approachable for human beings. So a huge thanks to those guys for setting this up. Our gadget of the week this week, DeskGreen.com, D-E-S. K-R-E-E-N.com. So what this is, is a software project that allows you to repurpose any device that can open a web browser to be a second display for your computer. Uh, so right from their site, people nowadays are buying devices very often and may have an old tablet laying around or phone laying around or laptop that they stopped using. If your old tablet or phone or laptop is still able to run a browser, Desk Green can help you bring new life to it. And it can become your second monitor. So Desk Green is an open source application that allows any device with a web browser to become a second screen for your computer. It's built with Electron JS, so it's completely cross-platform. It supports Windows, Mac, and Linux. It works with Wi-Fi or Wired LAN. You can use any device with a web browser as a second screen. Uh, you can mirror your computer screen. You can use the device to uh, browse the, the, the web. You can drag applications from one screen to the other. It supports multiple screen sharing sessions, as many devices as you want. It supports uh, changing the picture quality while sharing a screen. Uh, picture audio quality is supported, and it supports end-to-end -end encryption, so you don't have to worry about the privacy of sending your screens over your network. Supports dark mode and is available for both Mac, Windows, and Linux. This is a fantastic project, an absolutely fantastic project, and really, it's one of those things where I've seen little uh, Type C monitors and um, and 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 auxiliary little monitors that look like tablets but are powered by Type C, uh, or maybe they have like a little HDMI connection. I've thought numerous times, like, man, that would be nice to have when I'm out on the road and I don't have access to my full 
uh, battle station and I'm, I'm working mobile. That would be really nice. But, you know, that's one more thing I have to buy and one more thing I have to carry with me. And when it breaks or when the battery dies and I have to, yeah, and research and just kind of gave up on it. The ability to just take a tablet that I already have or a laptop that I already have and just say, hey, that's going to be my second screen or even better yet, use the client's computer that's already sitting there half the time and just say, hey, I'm going to borrow this for a second, open up a web page, boom, that's my second screen now. This is absolutely fantastic. Stuff like this is only possible because of the modularity of technology. We've gotten to the point now where screen sharing is second nature to people. We do it in Zoom. We do it in Hangouts. We do it all over the place. And we don't really think twice about it. This guy said, hey, if if you can do screen sharing and you can send your screen to a bunch of other people, what if I just shared a screen and had it as a second display and then you and then viewed that screen on a web browser and then used it as a second display? I mean, it's just it's 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 brilliance combining uh, creativity with technical know-how. I just I love stuff like this. So the, the app is Desk Green. You can learn more at deskgreen, D-E-S-K-R-E-E-N.com. And of course, we'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. In the news this week, a Kickstarter for the Solo Key V2 is off to a great start. Now, the Solo Key, if you're not familiar with it, is a competitor to the YubiKey. But unlike the YubiKey, everything in the Solo Key, from the hardware to the software, is open source. So of course it I keep my finger on the pulse of anything that SoloKey does. So the 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 SoloKey V2 they have improved a number of things. Probably the coolest thing that I I saw reversible connector for both type A and type C. Noah, how can you do a reversible connector for type A? Well, essentially instead of building the little metal rectangular thing and then having the contacts on one side of the rectangular thing, they put contacts on both sides of a little plastic tongue and so you can insert it into the center of a USB slot, but no matter which way you do it, the, the prongs, because they wrap over the plastic, are present on both sides of that little tongue. So they've somehow solved the problem that has been plaguing USB for the last 10 years, 15 years. Uh, and I think that's fantastic. Of course, it's also available in a Type-C variant um, that you're – because a lot of laptops are only coming with Type-C. Now, that enables you to insert the the device into a USB uh, port in either direction. Now, you might ask yourself, why is that so important? Well, on these uh, authentication devices, there are buttons on them, and there's also LEDs. And if the LEDs and the buttons are not facing the operator, it becomes difficult for them to use it. And of course, we could not, it couldn't be as simple as manufacturers standardize the way that they put USB ports on everything. And so there's no good way to attack that problem, unless, of course, you can find a way to engineer a type A connector that is reversible, which they've done. So other additions include touch buttons. The This is a change from the original solo key, which required a button to be depressed in order to activate. And of course, when you depress a button, it causes stress on, you You know, think about it, you've plugged this USB thing into your computer. And so effectively, you've created a, a, a four inch lever. And if the button, depending on where the button is, how far back from the fulcrum it is, you're pushing and you're applying a tremendous amount of stress to your USB connector. And so, and it's awkward. The touch button solves all of that. It removes all the stress and allows for much easier activation. Of course, the Solo Key 2 supports NFC, so that means it's going to work flawlessly on your mobile device. You're just going to have, you just be able to touch it to the back of your phone and, uh, and, and you can authenticate that way. It supports firmware upgrading, which is one of the things I questioned YubiKey about back when we interviewed them at scale. One of the big challenges for security keys is that most devices are not updatable. And of course, the reason that most devices are not updatable is because it's a security thing. If you, if you, you, you don't want to have people writing alternative firmware to a device that you have to trust for security. 
Um, but that presents a problem because when devices become outdated, they literally become paperweights and you have to throw them away. And we've watched that happen to YubiKey. They've said, hey, there's a security thing. We can't fix it. Throw it in the trash. We'll send you a new one. Um, not the case with the V2. Uh, you're going to be able to update this thing. And that means that you don't have to worry about your gear being superseded. So V2 users and enterprise members can commit to their authenticator, knowing that they're going to have access and benefit from improvements they make of the firmware down the road. And last but not least, they support PIV. Now, if you're not familiar with PIV, this is the authentication method, personal identification verification. And this is the authentication method that I've been using for SSH for a long time. And so for advanced authentication where WebAuth isn't, isn't going to cut it, uh, an integral part of their strategy is to use PIV or FIPS 201. And uh, you can use a companion app with the key, plus it's plug and play on Windows, and it works perfectly with OpenSC. OpenSC is the smart card uh, daemon for Linux and is what uh, authenticates a PKCS 11 or or facilitates a PKCS 11 provider authenticating into an SSH server. Now, additionally, each device comes with a P256 and ED25519 at attestation certificate. Um, essentially, we have moved the standard from RSA uh, to this ED25519, and I've, I've not dug deep into it, but I'm happy to see that the device supports it. Um, and this is, of course, signed by the root CA. And so the, any any things that any keys that are generated are generated with that CA in mind. So the solo key V2, it's on Kickstarter now. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. If you haven't picked up a second factor authentication device, you really should consider it. Uh, two factor authentication is at some point going to become the standard. WebAuth N is is pushing to become that standard. And the idea is, of course, something you have, something you know. With WebAuth N, the idea is if we Send a password reset to an email to begin with, and that's what the user does to reset the password. And so if the user has access to the email, then they can just reset the password. And so there really isn't a point of having 2FA to begin with, or excuse me, there isn't a point in having a, a separate password to begin with. Um, can we just obfuscate that and say, hey, if the user has this device and they can prove that they have this device, then the device is something they have. And then the something they know can become slightly less uh, robust because you don't need a 26 character password if the password has to be used in conjunction with the device. Um, and that's kind of the idea behind WebAuth N is that we can have physical devices on everyone's computer and WebAuth N supports different kind of devices. So cameras will be included, fingerprint scanners will be included. And of course, these uh, two-factor authentication keys, which I like because they go from machine to machine. They can also be used with your phone. Uh, I'm still a proponent of the YubiKey. We won't be switching anytime soon, but I, I will purchase a SoloKey V2 and check it out because I am excited anytime there's competition on the market. This is a story we didn't get to from last week, but I wanted to cover it because I think it's important. The Mobian Community Edition was released, a Debian computer in your pocket. Now, the Pine Phone is basically a handheld computer with a 4G connectivity. And Mobian uh, is a phone that comes with the distribution of basically Debian uh, for the Pine Phone. Uh, it comes with Posh, which is a GNOME uh, desktop environment built specifically for the phone and, and uh, built, built on GNOME technology, initially developed for Purism and their Librem 5. Now, the default applications have been selected for their usability on a phone-sized display, um, but that list can grow over time. In addition, they're not stopping you from using other software. Now, when you first power up your Pine phone with Mobian Edition, you're going to be prompted with the installer, allowing you to choose your username and password and full disk encryption. 
They support full disk encryption. Uh, the hardware support is pretty much complete. And while it still needs to be refined, there's a number of areas that you're going to be able to enjoy full function, full phone functionality, including voice calls, SMS, mobile broadband, Wi-Fi, back cameras, the whole nine yards from day one. This is what happens when you have a fantastic software collection of people working with a fantastic hardware collection of people and what they can produce they can just iterate constantly right they release the pine phone they say anybody can build an os and what happens people are crawling out of the woodworks man to make operating systems for this phone that's barely been on the market for a few years it's unbelievable but it's great and the thing is i have i, I have because I'm baller like that, have two Pine phones. I have one that I, I, I test on, then one that I have, I'm carrying day to day just to kind of see uh, what it's like. It's not going to replace your phone. It's not meant to replace your phone. Uh, it's not a full production phone. It's decidedly a toy. But it's a toy that allows software developers to make real progress on pushing an operating system out. And you as the user can literally sit there with uh, with Jump Drive installed on the on the Pine phone and just say, I'm going to try this one. I'm going to try that one. I'm going to try this one. I'm going to try that one. I like this. I don't like that. And now we add another one, Moby, into the list. So the speed at which this stuff is developed and released is absolutely mind-blowing. But they... Both Pine and Mobian and anybody else in Ubuntu Touch and all of the people that are working on these projects, they really understand their target audience because their target audience is tinkerers and players and people that have been thirsty for years to start playing with mobile stuff. Everybody else, Samsung and, and, and Apple, they're all coming out with all these new devices and there's all this iteration on, on mobile operating systems. And if you're a person that likes playing with stuff yourself and owning your data, you've just been kind of left out in the cold. Not any longer. Pine has fixed that. Mobian has fixed that. So uh, make sure to check out the Mobian edition. You can read the blog post at blog.mobian-project.org. Of course, there's information on pine64.org, and we'll have all those links for you in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. The Beagle 5, the RISC-V open source instruction set, also known as an ISA, free of patents and, de and devoid of licensing fees. So this is a processor that is open source. Now, as you might imagine, uh, a processor that has developed an open source, very much like the Pine phone, uh, it doesn't get the same kind of attention and doesn't have the same kind of power that AMD and Intel have. But in their own way, RISC-V is very appealing to people that want to do embedded things because there is there's there's no licensing to be in to be uh, bogged down by. The problem was their entry level board, uh, which launched last year, was five hundred and seventy. Excuse me, six hundred and seventy dollars. That's a lot of money. I, yeah, mind, mind you, we're comparing this to like a Raspberry Pi or like a any of the you know any of the single board uh, computers. So <laughs> when, when you're talking about spending almost you know a, a nice laptop uh, for for a single board computer, that that's a little pricey. It was first introduced in 2010. So it's relatively new, uh, and it's certainly not the most powerful processor on the block, but it's very power efficient. And again, open source, no patents, means it's it, it's very welcome inside of things like embedded devices. So this new uh, this new BeagleBoard Risk Five board is built around a dual core 1.5 gigahertz Super Five Sci Five U74 processor with. 2 megabytes of L2 cache, a neural engine for hardware accelerated computing, a video decoder and encoder, so the ability to handle 4K 60 frame XPS for encoding. It contains an HDMI out, 30 frames per second, 1080p. It has four 
uh, regular USB 3.0 ports, an Ethernet port, audio, a micro SD slot, a USB Type-C port for power, integrated Wi-Fi 2.4 gigahertz, A, B, G, and N, Bluetooth 4.2, a 40-pin GPIO connector, two MIPI CSI connectors. If you're not familiar with that, they're little... Uh, it's essentially surface mount connect, not surface mount, but like if you want to connect a camera, but you don't want it hanging out the side of the thing, you can attach it right to the board. And then there's an MIPI DSI, which is the same thing as the MIPI CSI, except one's for camera and the DSI is for display. Um, you currently have to sign in for the chance to buy the BeagleBone 5, but it's only 149 bucks for the 8 gig model. So this is a game changer for people that want to play with Risk 5. Again, we'll have uh, complete links for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Jing OS, the desktop operating systems don't work on tablets. Tablet operating systems don't work on desktops. And so as the world continues to shift to mobile, Linux is following suit. A new operating system is on the scene, and this is taking users by surprise. It's the kind of operating system that users would expect on an iPad, but it's completely open source, and it's built on Linux. Many Linux mobile operating systems feel like a desktop operating system that's been squashed onto a small screen, and of course, the experience for the user is pretty terrible. Jing OS is based off of Ubuntu 20.04. And being based off of 20.04, KDE 5.75, Plasma Mobile 5.20, it will replace the framework of Plasma Mobile to JDE, what they're calling the Jing desktop environment later this year. Now, uh, I looked at the screenshots that they have. This is very early. It's not very often that we talk about mobile operating systems, uh, particularly tablet mobile operating systems, but this seems to be on the up and up. Uh, they have they have support for the Microsoft Surface 6. They have support for the Huawei MateBook 14. But I, I, I just, I see this and I think to myself, finally, finally, somebody who is making basic mobile apps specifically for Linux. It includes a calendar, timer, files, it includes a media player, a calculator. JingOS is a full-function Linux uh, distro based on Ubuntu, and it can run full Linux desktop apps like VS Code, LibreOffice. JingOS is a productive OS designed specifically for tablets. Now, they've done some optimization so that you can use things like gestures. You can even use a trackpad or mimic a trackpad gesture similar to your screen gestures, which makes a better experience on the device. So again, jingos.com will continue to follow it and continue to provide updates. Uh, but again, not very often we see a tablet operating system, even less that we see a tablet operating system that really is styled uh, and has all of the polish that you would see from something like an iOS. Self-hosting has been a major part of this program since episode one, and it has been that way because I personally believe that people should understand the technology that they're working with, and they should trust the technology that they're working with, and the only way they can do that is if they have control over the technology that they're working with. So Microsoft recently switched their edge-based browser to be based on Chrome. And at the time, a lot of us applauded Microsoft for doing this. First of all, it killed all of the Internet Explorer's jokes, and that was great. But from a system administration standpoint, it was an exciting prospect because you routinely run across clients that have some sort of weird ActiveX thing or some weird thing that requires Internet Explorer to be in production. Of course, nobody that administrates systems really wants to support Internet Explorer. And so the fact that Microsoft was going to go to the same standard that 
Chrome has been based off of and the same thing that Chromium is based off of and this, this, this one engine to rule them all seemed like not a half bad idea. The problem, of course, it puts Google squarely in control of the Internet or at least the browser part of the Internet. To put, break that down into numbers for you, Chrome represents 69% of all the browsers on the Internet. Edge, by comparison, represents just about 8%. So when you combine those two together, Google is well over 75% of the Internet is controlled by one organization, or at least has significant influence uh, by one organization. Trailing behind that is Safari at 19%, Firefox at 3%, Samsung at 3%, and Opera at 2%. Now, many people, to include myself, called this from day one. We said this was going to be problematic, because anytime you have the company the size of Google, they're always going to put their own interests first. So it comes as a surprise to no one that the second the situation changes and their goodwill is no longer beneficial to their bottom line, they remove it. And it's not really practical for a competitor of Chrome to be based off of the same engine that Chrome is when Google controls that engine and more importantly, the APIs to additional services. And so that's what changed. Google is discontinuing third-party access uh, for their API. And what that means in, in, in short order is that you won't be able to sign into the browser anymore. Uh, and so you won't be able to take advantage of any of the sync services. And that really makes Chromium practically useless, or at least adds very little value, uh, to go to a Chromium based browser rather than, uh, using Google Chrome. Now, certainly there's going to be those of you out there that say, I like the Chrome engine and I don't want Google to have any of my data anyway. So I didn't use the sync services. And I guess if that you're in that boat, then nothing changes for you. But for a lot of people that rely on those sync services to sync their their, their bookmarks or their history or their passwords or whatever else, um, this is a deal breaker. And this erupted into a quite feisty discussion on the mailing list. Package maintainers came out and said, what are you doing? Google, you told us that we could do this. You gave us this API key. We've not done anything irresponsible with it. Uh, it it has undoubtedly grown your own user base and the information that you get from these people is valuable to you. Google's answer, we're holding firm. It's our browser. It's our sync system. And we don't want people using browsers that they can audit and see the code and understand. It has to be a proprietary browser from Google. And that's the only way that you can access our sync API. That's the only way that we're going to allow you to take advantage of those services. And then we get all that data. Developers then pointed out that it was Google themselves that authorized this in the first place. And Google essentially tried to make it sound like they were flying under the radar and as part of some audit that they've now discovered that there are these third-party services that are accessing this API. And that's really not what Google intended. So uh, now they're going to cut them sh sh short and they're, they're going to shut it down. And I, again, told you this was coming. We knew it was coming someday. Today is that day. Uh, that this is being announced and it's going to land very shortly. And when it does, that's going to render very little value in Chromium, uh, devoid of all services like syncing bookmarks, password, etc. Point blank, you won't be able to sign into the browser. So we have some forward momentum on that front. Obviously, Firefox, the Mozilla team continues to fight the good fight for an open and private web. Vivaldi, we've got Opera. There's a lot of progress being made in third party browsers. Long term, I hope it will work out, but there's so much momentum and so much emphasis on testing against Chrome because it represents such a large part of the Internet. I'm concerned that it's going to be very difficult um, to resolve this issue. One thing I would like to see is 
the exploration of a third-party syncing service. Now, I'm told by developers and package maintainers, and by the way, I'm not one, that that's not really a practical option, that that would be very difficult, if not impossible, to do. But one of the things that has concerned me about Chromium from day one is that there, because it was based on the Google Chrome engine, there's when you start looking into how much data is sent back to Google from Chrome, and you start to compare that to what is sent from Chromium, it's significantly less, but you cannot eliminate all communication from Chromium back to Google. And some of those, some of that information, we don't even necessarily know what's in the payload. And people have guessed, but we don't know. Um, and so for that reason, I've always been a little like, eh, wouldn't it be great if that didn't exist? Unfortunately, this is not the only change that Google is making. Now, anybody that follows Google for more than five minutes knows that they have a, a habit of spinning up a product, letting it run for a little bit, and then killing it. And then they spin up another product, sometimes to replace the old product, run it for a little bit, and then they kill it. Uh, and this is kind of a, a cycle that Google goes through. Well, Google is doing the same thing with photos. Uh, Four trillion photos stored on Google Photos. Every week, 28 billion new photos and videos have been uploaded. Now, Google launched Google Photos over five years ago with the intention of giving people a place to sync their photos up to the cloud. Well, starting June 1st of 2021, any new photos or videos added will count against your 15 gigabytes of free storage that comes with every Google account. Uh, if you don't purchase any additional storage space, then you're not going to be able to back those pictures up. Now, your your Google account storage is, of course, shared across Drive, Gmail, and Photos. So that means that depending on what you're storing on Drives is going to depend on how many photos that you can actually back up. Uh, any photos that you've uploaded in high quality before June 1st will not count towards that 15 gigabyte limit. So it's not retroactive, and that's kind of nice. If you had a bunch of photos there, it's not like there's going to be a rush to get them all off of Google. But starting June 1st, you're not going to be able to add any more without it counting against that limit. Unless, of course, you buy one of their devices. Now, if you have a Pixel 1-5, photos are exempted from uh, from that device and they won't be impacted. And photos and videos uploaded in high quality from that device will continue to be exempt even after the change of June 1st. So the TLDR is Google rolled out photos, told everyone to back up their photos to the cloud, and that would help users not lose data or their photos. Then they backed up all of your photos and then they threw away the quality and told you, back these up anyway, go ahead and reduce the quality, but it'll be free if you back up these photos, free for life. You can store them here forever. And now that everyone is nice and settled, they're changing the rules. So Hangouts dies a slow death. Photos is dying a slow death. Chrome is taking over the world. There's a lot of people out there saying, I'm looking for privacy, open source, autonomy. And a lot of users are making the commitment to de-Googleify themselves over the next year. We saw that a lot back in December for the, for the first year. And we've been seeing it a lot in the chat rooms and in emails and in forum posts and all of those kinds of things. And more tools exist now than ever to make that a reality for most users. So we wanted to take a moment and focus on such tools. Now, before I go any further, I want to point out that if you're looking for self-hosted tools, particularly ones to replace a proprietary tool, there's an awesome GitLab repository called Awesome Self-Hosted that contains a list of all of the self-hosted applications that you might want to do. And of course, in that category is photo and video galleries. Now, nothing is set in stone, but I've tried a number of these. And the one that I've landed on that I'm, I'm kind of digging right now is PyWego. Uh, there's a plenty of other excellent uh, software out there. And again, nothing is set in stone, so I may eventually bail on it or try some other ones. But the model that I believe all FOSS-oriented businesses should follow is the following. 
First, you offer a free trial to the user. Then you have a paid subscription. And ultimately, you have the ability for that user to take their data and self-host it somewhere. All three of those steps are absolutely necessary, and here's why. If you don't have the trial, then you don't give me the opportunity to try your product. And if I don't have the opportunity to try your product, or if it stops at 30 days, and I don't have the ability to pay you to keep uh, your product going, then and I'm not ready to self-host, then it's just a non-starter. And when we were, we we looked, I think last year we were looking at ticket systems at Altaspeed and said, you know, are we still going to stick with OS ticket? We did. Uh, but we looked at a couple of other ones. And right off the bat, one of the things that killed a lot of these right off the top was they had a demo and you could play with the demo, but if you wanted a your own instance, you had to spin that up yourself. And so the ones that had just a paid subscription that we could just pay for and try them, those got tried. And the ones that were self-hosted, we still tried them. We just tried them later. But I have to imagine that if you're an individual, maybe you don't have the experience to set up a server. Maybe you don't want to be responsible for the server. I know that if I didn't work in IT for a living, uh, there's no way on this planet that I would sign up to host my wife's photos because I can only imagine the conversation that I would have should something go wrong. Now, it's just, you know, we have access to a data center and backup servers and all that kind of stuff. So I'm pretty comfortable self-hosting it, but a lot of people aren't. And that paid hosting allows people to dig in and try your project. Skip the trial and you just have paid hosting, may not ever even have time to try the project because I'm not signing up for a paid subscription until I can try it and see how it works, depending on the cost, of course. Um, on the other hand, if you don't have any self-hosting, frankly, if you have proprietary software, even if it's great proprietary software that works really well, if I can't self-host it, it's just a placeholder until I find something I can. And so PyWego checks all of those boxes, all of the boxes. And much like Pine, PyWego has both PyWego.org and PyWego.com. Now, PyWego.org is the software project site. You can download, self-host right from their site. Much like Pine, you can go to pywego.com, and this is their commercial site. Just like you'd expect from any other service provider, Dropbox, Office 365, G Suite, they have plans, they have pricing, you sign up, you're good to go. And it includes a free trial, so you can try before you buy. Now, the plans are really reasonable. For individuals, one year is just 39 euros. To do the translation, that's 50 bucks a year. Unlimited storage, photos only, no ads, and they give you a custom domain to your server. Now, they also have business plans available. Those start at 50 gigs uh, for 45 euros and go all the way up to 250 euros for one terabyte. Now, if you do the business plan, it includes all file types. They also have a humanitarian organization discount upon request. You can get 50% off an enterprise plan. So they're going to give it to you at half price. The free trial takes 13 seconds to spin up. How do I know that? Because they because they keep an average of how long it takes to provision your server. And it tells you while it provisions your server what the average is on provisioning new servers, which happened to be 13 seconds. Um, I installed the mobile app on my phone and I started creating albums. It was that simple. Uh, by default, all albums you create are public, which means that guests can view the photos without authentication. They just have to know the URL uh, of the album. Administrators have the opportunity to create users, groups, manage permissions, send out notifications. You can even have several administrators working all at the same time on PyWego. So it makes it an ideal environment for your team. And I can tell you, uh, after using it for just a few hours today, um, I'm already at the point where I'm talking to our team at AltaSpeed and saying, hey, is this something we could use? Because we go into 
uh, you know, environments, we say we always try and take an updated picture of the rack so that when somebody is troubleshooting and going, ah, that switch died, which one is this? The third one down. What model is that? Just look at the picture. Client notes. Ah, there we go. That's the one. Um, This is a tool that would allow us to organize that uh, a little bit more, specifically because it supports album hierarchy. So you can have, you know, family, then inside a family, you can have kids. Inside of kids, you can have each kid listed by name. And each one of those can be a separate album. And of course, the permissions and, and, and authentication can all be configured uh, per album, which is really fantastic. Also, straight from their own privacy policy, they work with two other organizations, MailJet and Help Scout, which essentially are the automated mailing things that they use in their ticketing system. Um, but other than that, they say that PyWego's business model relies on subscriptions for clients. Thus, personal data that they store, such as email address in order to contact you or IP address for technical and troubleshooting reasons, are never used. Uh, outside the hosting operations and your data is never sold exchanged with any partner never and i'm reading that right from their site any partner period never uh love that you get your own instance love that you can share photos without an account love that you can have multiple accounts on the pi wego app so if i pursue this idea of i have my personal pi wego and i have one from alta speed technologies that we're going to use i have that opportunity to sign into both of those accounts right at the same time and have those available to me uh, on my phone. I can just switch. I'm uploading this one to AltaSpeed, that one to personal, this one to a friend's instance that they are sharing photos with me or I'm sharing photos with them. They have an extension system. So if there's things that you don't like, there is flexibility built into the system that you can expand. They offer themes and slideshow presentation. This is something uh, we see from customers from time to time. They'll still come in and say, hey, I'm having a wedding, a, a, a birthday party, or a, a, whatever it is, a funeral, and um, I have all these pictures, and we want to just play them in a slideshow. And so up until now, uh, we just put them inside of LibreOffice or uh, you, you know, put them put them into a, a nonlinear video editor and, and added some music and gave them an MP4 to play. Uh, but this is another way to go. You just, hey, go to this site, click on this album, click on presentation, and Bob's your uncle. All those folders are going to go out. The other thing is uh, it's just a more streamlined process for the end user. They just go to that site, and it works for them. one 855 noah one 855 email live at com. Jared's with us. Hey, Jared, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. Hi there. Um, so I'm trying to install um, Thomson Reuters work papers. Have you heard of that before? I have not. It's basically accounting software that runs on Windows. Okay. Um, so the issue I'm having with it is that it, it needs an SQL server. It's trying to use Microsoft SQL Server 2014. Okay. Um, when I go through that process, it keeps barfing, and the error message changes, so I can't really get a good grasp as to what's going on. Um, I'd rather just use, um, like, a, a Ubuntu server and just use SQL um, off of that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's possible. I'm kind of confused as to how Windows um, kind of does this, and I'm also kind of confused as to what the OD, OD, oh, I'm sorry, the ODBC driver does. Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the disclaimer that I'm not a database admin, um, but 
But I, I will tell you this. Uh, the, most for the most part, Microsoft SQL just follows the SQL standard, and so there are open open source implementations um, that do the same thing. The closest I believe is Postgres. Uh, I can tell you for, for a fact that there is a there is a company that I'm aware of that was entirely a Microsoft shop. They did everything in Microsoft SQL, and they are transitioning to Postgres. So it is certainly possible to say, hey. They originally intended this to run on a Windows SQL system, but actually I'm going to use it over here with a, with a open source Linux Postgres system, and that's a thing that can work. Um, as to the exact particulars to how you set that up, I, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> um, so it sounds like I should stick to the Microsoft world then for that kind of stuff. I, I'll tell you what I'll do. Here's what I would do, Jared. I would say stick to the Microsoft world for right now. Give me, uh, give me a week – undoubtedly somebody is going to write into this program and say, you know what, I was there last, I was there a few months ago and our company did this and here's exactly how you do it. That, that That's going to come up, I can almost guarantee it. So I would just, I'd tell you to hang tight for a week and let's see if anybody in the community out there has an answer for you. And then if that doesn't work, then you can dig all into Microsoft. And by the way, if you do that, Jared, I would highly suggest uh, virtualizing the Windows box that runs the Microsoft SQL Server. And that way you can take advantage of things like snapshotting and all of those kinds of things so that it kind of lessens the burden. For Windows. Hey, the music in my ears means it's time to go. It's another episode of the Ask Noah Show. We appreciate you being here. We record the show live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can be part of the show. Join us in our interactive chat room. Throughout the week, visit us podcast.asknoahshow.com. Follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah. We'll see you next week.